Amen. We want to welcome everybody. What a great day of worship. And if you're with us in our summit service, uh, just know you are in for a treat as uh, we were just uh, led in worship by our special guest today. And you will experience that uh, uh, same worship experience at the conclusion of the message today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 21. We ordinarily, if you have been with us a number of weeks, you know, uh, just preach through books of the Bible. And uh, we handle the subject matters as they pop up in Scripture. But I shared with you this last week as we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation that I was considering taking a one-week break and addressing uh, some of the Bible issues that have Uh, become news headlines in recent weeks. Uh, Ordinarily, as I said, we don't do it this way. We uh, just take the issues as they come, but there seemed to be a special urgency to this issue, and today I want to address it from God's Word. Uh, So here we are. Uh, I promise you this will not be a political message. I will not give you my personal manifesto But I want to hold up Scripture as a plumb line, as the Bible says in Amos chapter 7, so that we can see the truth and we can see where we and society vary from the truth. So what's the issue in the headlines that we want to address today? Well, two weeks ago, uh, there was a leak of a draft by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito Uh, describing what at least appears to be a preliminary ruling by a majority of the justices of the Supreme Court in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And the ruling, if it remains unchanged and is in fact signed by a majority of the justices, it would completely overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, Roe v. Wade is a a Supreme Court decision in January of 1973 that along with uh, the companion decision, Doe v. Bolton, handed down the same day, made abortion permissible, legal, everywhere in America and essentially without restriction for all nine months of pregnancy. Now, overturning Roe v. Wade would not make abortion illegal anywhere But what it would do is then allow the legislatures, the elected legislatures, both in the states and on the federal level, to make laws restricting abortion. And we know that many of them will, and even some have, and those laws are waiting to be fully enforced. This would essentially shift the responsibility for making laws about abortion from the courts to the legislatures. Now, let's all take a deep breath. I know that we have people that will have all different kinds of perspectives when it comes to the matter of abortion. Uh, I want you to know, whatever you believe, in the next few minutes, you're not going to be attacked or denigrated or castigated or maligned I understand the tensions that surround this issue, and I promise to handle it with respect. But what I want to do is to 
approach it from the perspective of how our church as a biblical church, as a church built upon the foundation of God's word, how it is that we can do ministry in the midst of this great controversy over abortion and access to abortion. How can we as a church be the salt and light of the world? How can we shine forth the light of Christ? How can we love our neighbors as ourselves in the midst of this of this time of controversy. That's what I want us to to do today. So I've got four things that we need to do. Number one, we must focus on Christ. If you've been to our new member class that we spoke of earlier, then you have heard me say at First Baptist Church, we don't want to be known for what we are against against abortion, against homosexuality, against some other sin. We don't want to be known for what we are against. We want to be known for what we are for. Or more to the point, who we are for. We are for Christ. Now, sometimes to be for one thing, you have to be against something else. And consequently, we are against some things But our focus is on heralding Christ. I looked back at all the sermons that I've preached on abortion. Uh, I've been a senior pastor for over 20 years, and, and I've preached on abortion quite a few times. And I'm afraid that in many of those instances, my sermon was more of of a flamethrower than it was careful Bible exposition. And I know there are times for that. But I want to take a little different approach today. Today, I don't want to stand and shout at the darkness. Today, I want to shine the light of Christ into the darkness. And so this will be a little different approach. I want to make sure that through this whole thing that we herald Christ. Because Christ is the only one who can change hearts. Christ is the only one who can give hope to a young, scared, pregnant girl contemplating abortion. Christ is the only one who can give strength and wisdom to raise up a child in a less than perfect environment. Christ is the only one that can give a young man the strength and the fortitude to step up and take his responsibility to father a child. Listen, there are many women and men in our church and in our community and in our families that are suffering from the aftermath of abortion, who have chosen to abort and who are struggling because of it. Listen, I want to say something to you. Christ can be your hope, your solace, your peace, your forgiveness, and your abundant life, and he can put your life back together. And we're going to talk about that today. But I also want to say something to our church. There's something I want our church to hear through this message. There are children, born and unborn, in our community, in our country, around the world, that need rescue. Uh, They need somebody to rescue them. Christ wants to rescue these children. And we are the hands and feet of Christ. It's not enough for us to just preach our sermons 
We need to love these women. We need to love these children. We need to see people through unplanned and difficult pregnancies. We need to step in when people can't raise their children. And we need to raise them ourselves without delay. We need to love these women and love these children. How should the church respond to the abortion crisis? Well, we should speak the truth, and I'm going to do that today. But let's be, listen church, let's be known more for our support, our love, our mercy, and our care than we are for our sermons. What if 20 families from First Baptist Church called the local foster care programs tomorrow and inquired how they could care for children in this community separated from their parents? What if five families in our church inquired next week about the first steps for adoption? I'll tell you what would happen. That would be so much greater than the impact that this sermon will have because a bunch of children created in the image of God would be loved on with the love of Christ. You know, people say, Pastor, you need to preach on abortion. And I say, you're right, I do. And you and me need to step up and we need to love and support children who haven't been aborted. That's the other part of the equation. If we say children have value, if they're created in the image of God, if their lives should be protected, then we as a church need to love on them. There are three or four great organizations in our community uh, apart even from our church, that minister to underserved children, you ought to volunteer at one of those. You ought to write them a check. You ought to see if there's a way that you can foster or adopt. And if you can't foster or adopt, you need to find someone who's very early in the process and you need to help them foster or adopt. You help them financially. You help them in some other way. I think the biggest problem with the issue so far as the church is concerned, not our church, but the church, we've been guilty of being more interested in our rhetoric than we are in the babies. Now, we need to be clear about our rhetoric, and we will be today, as clear as I can, as I can be. But let us, even more than that, be clear in our love for these Women and these children throughout this next year, showing them the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of the Lord, and showing the love of Christ in every way we can. So how does our church navigate this? Well, number one, we just need to focus on Christ. Number two, we need to embrace Scripture. Uh, there are really a couple of questions that are important here. The first one is, when does life begin? And secondly, what determines if life is valuable? And if we could agree, if the world could agree on the answer to those two questions, the whole issue would be settled instantly. So where do we turn to find the answer to those two questions? When does life begin? And uh, how do we know that life is valuable? Well, there are not as many places to turn as you would think, but I'll suggest a few. The world suggests a few, and I'll talk about those, and then I'll suggest one. So first of all, uh, the world suggests the matter of independence. So some people would say, many people in fact, that that uh, life inside the womb is not real life because it is not independent 
of the host. It is not independent of the mother who is carrying the baby. In fact, some people would even bristle at calling it a baby because they say it is, it is so dependent, it is not independent, it is not individual, so we shouldn't call it a baby. Well, I think if we take a deeper look at this, it's just an argument that doesn't hold water. We can't say the life is not valuable because it's not some independent thing, because it is independent. Let me share. From the moment of conception, that baby has a unique DNA, unique from any other person in the world, in all of history, instantly at the time of conception, there is a unique genetic code. From early on in development, that baby has its own heart. She has a discernible, independent heartbeat after just two weeks. She has her own circulatory system with her own blood produced by her own little body. She has her own brain, independent brain waves detectable now at six weeks. She has her own fingers at six weeks and fingerprints at nine weeks. She has independent responses to stimuli. She can cry at 12 weeks. She has independent functioning kidneys at six weeks and a fully functional gallbladder at nine weeks. Now, we're going to talk about viability in a moment. But to say that that is not a separate living person, to say that that is not an independent life, is to not speak honestly about the evidence. You can't say that that baby is not valuable or not a person because it doesn't have independence. Well, then some people would then point us to viability. Viability just simply means the point at which the baby can live outside the womb. When is a child viable? Now, the most interesting part of this, and I tried to read as much literature as I could this week from the side that I would not agree with. Because I wanted to try to see things from a different perspective. I wanted to have uh, an appreciation of, of, of what other people are saying about this. And, and so uh, those that would advocate for abortion access, they're writing just reams of papers on viability. When does viability happen? Is it 20 weeks or 22 weeks or 24 weeks? And there's all this literature. And when you read it, you would, you would get the impression, if you were not careful, that the people writing this literature, that they must believe that after viability, it would be wrong to abort the child, but before viability, it's okay to abort the child. But that's not at all what they're saying. These groups, they're, they're for abortion access before and after. The whole argument, it's just an argument to muddy the waters and to confuse the issue. But I'll say a few things about viability. First of all, the point of viability is something that changes every year. With the advancement in uh, medical technology and medical practice and viability, when that child is able to live outside the womb, has as much to do with the health care that's available as, as many other factors. Viability at the Children's Hospital in Houston, that point is different than the point of viability in a rural medical clinic in Kenya. Next, uh, when, you, when it comes to viability, you're really talking about the development of the lungs. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't pretend to be a 
knowledgeable uh, medical person of, of any stripe. But what I understand is that when a baby is born premature and there's some question about that baby's viability, whether that baby will survive or not, often, I'm sure not all the time, but often the issue concerns the lungs. Will that baby be able to breathe on its own? Will it have the development in the lungs in order to be viable? Now, if we say that life is valuable, that life begins at viability, then what we're really saying is that life depends on the development of the lungs. Now, doesn't that sound like an arbitrary definition of life? I mean, if we're going to pick something, why would we pick the lungs? Maybe we should pick the heartbeat, or maybe we should pick brain activity. Those are things that we, measurements we use at the other end of life to determine when life has ceased. Uh, Maybe we should pick the point at which a child responds to stimuli, light or sound or some other stimulus. For that matter, maybe we should pick when the child takes its first steps. Maybe we should pick the day the child is potty trained. Or maybe we should pick the day the child quits calling daddy and asking for money. I mean, viability can be defined in a bunch of different ways. All that to say, viability is not a measure. The development of the, young, of the lungs cannot be a measure of either the beginning of life or the value of life. It's arbitrary. It's non-scientific. It's a poor measure of personhood. Well, the next one that people would mention is uh, desirability. And you'll hear people say, well, every child should be a wanted child. Well, who could disagree with that? But can we really use that as the determination of whether someone lives or dies? What if a parent decides when their child is two years old that they don't want their child? Certainly we wouldn't allow the child to be destroyed then. Should children come with a 90-day return policy? Of course not. Thankfully, I don't believe any rational person would say that the desirability of the child should determine the beginning of life or the value of life. Some people suggest emotional response. They say the baby is alive when the baby can feel pain. Uh, Now, this is a hotly contested issue. I tried to read as much as I could, uh, read medical journals online this week, didn't understand a lot of what I read. But it seems like that the issue of whether or not the child can feel pain in the womb uh, is dependent upon the development of the cortex and the thalamocortical tracts. No idea what that is. (laughs) But it seems like it boils down to this, that most would agree that 24 weeks and later, the child feels pain. 24 weeks and earlier, there is debate. But I think this is a matter of just common sense. I considered showing it here in church and chose not to, but you can go home if you choose and Google videos that are made of children in the womb responding to stimuli, and those are very graphic videos. And you can find 3D ultrasound images of the facial expressions of babies when they are exposed to what the medical journals called noxious stimuli 
And I'm telling you, when you see those, it's hard to believe that those babies don't feel pain. But either way, there's just not enough certainty here. This is, this is a, a poor way to decide whether or not that baby is real and alive and has value. So where do we turn? Well, we should turn to Scripture. We don't turn to Scripture because there are no other good arguments. There are. I think the four I just mentioned are pretty good arguments. And I could give you a whole list of them. I won't because I don't have time. Uh, but I thought, for one, the intuition of a mom I think that ought to count for something. And if you've ever seen the normal process of childbearing where a woman is in pain and agony until the moment her child is born and then she is presented that child and she embraces that child with such joy in her heart, you can't help but see that God has written on the heart of mankind that that baby has infinite value. And if it has infinite value five minutes after it's born, then certainly it has value. He has value, she has value five minutes before birth. But I say we turn to Scripture because Scripture is our final authority. So what does Scripture say? I could give you a number of verses. I'm going to limit it to just three or four passages. Number one, Psalm 139. David is talking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is talking to the Lord, and we see something about what God, how God sees the baby in the womb. Verse 13 says, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He's talking about the womb. He says, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, he's talking about the womb. He says, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. We see here clearly that in the heart and mind of God, when David was still in his mother's womb, that he was a real person, valuable to God, important to God. He had a future ahead of him. The Bible makes it clear that those babies, pre-born or post-born, are living creatures created in the image of God. We could turn to Luke chapter 1 where we see a very interesting encounter between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And they have some family relation, but their children have a relation. John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner of Jesus, and Jesus, of course, is going to be the Messiah. So both women are pregnant. They come into each other's uh, uh, environment, and here's what it says, Luke one forty one: when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped inside of her. Now, this is not to say that babies in the womb can be you know, aware of other babies and other wombs in the, in the room, but, but this is a special miracle. But what it does say is that is that John the Baptist in the womb was John the Baptist, and that Jesus in the womb was Jesus. These were real people, though they were not born. Another thing you can see in this same verse is that the Greek word for baby, here in verse 41, referring to the baby in the womb, Greek language is a very specific language. This word that the Bible uses for this preborn child that same word is used later to refer to the postborn child. Luke chapter 2, verse 12 is just one of many examples. It says, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And it's the same word. Brephos is the word. Same word to refer to a fetus and to a baby because in the mind of God, it's the same, same thing. 
But I think perhaps the best place to look is in Exodus chapter 21. I hope you've turned there with me. Here we have the, the law as it was given for civil affairs, uh, civic affairs uh, in uh, the nation of Israel. And so this doesn't apply to us today in the same way, but it gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. It says in Exodus 21, 22, when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to the judicial assessment. And so it says if there are two men fighting and there is a pregnant woman standing close by and one of the men hits the pregnant woman, she gives premature birth. If the child is unharmed, then the man is is charged with battery, with assault, and it's adjudicated. But it says in the next verses, if there is injury to the baby, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. This is similar to the laws that we have in our nation today. If a woman is pregnant, she's driving a car and a drunk driver hits her, she's going down the road and causes her to give premature, premature birth to that baby and the baby dies then that driver is charged with, uh, with manslaughter or, or murder in some sense. Uh, now, if she didn't get hit and she made it to the abortion clinic and the abortion doctor removed the baby and the baby lost its life, that would be perfectly legal. But see, we see here into the heart of God when God gives this command that God sees that baby as a real person created in the image of God, full value. You know, I think of myself as a Bible Christian what I mean by that is that uh, I love all the arguments, the logical arguments, historical arguments, philosophical, ontological, political. I've, I read as much as I could read about all those arguments this week, but when it comes right down to it, I just believe what the Bible says. And the Bible makes this uh, a pretty clear matter. Well, the third thing we need to do is to give an answer to give an answer. I'm going to go very quickly. You're going to have to listen quickly. First Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks. And as Christians, we need to have enough respect for people that disagree with us that we will give them an answer with the issues that they raise. I'll share just a few of those with you. Sometimes people ask, is abortion a constitutional right? Well, I'm not a constitutional expert, of course, uh, but I know that abortion is never mentioned in the constitution as a right or in any other way. Some suggest, although this uh, legal argument has uh, begun to go out of favor, even with those that uh, previously held it, uh, they, they suggest that the, that the right of abortion is based on the right of privacy, which is also a right that is not uh, enumerated in the Constitution. Uh, now, maybe if you hold your head sideways and your jaw sort of funny, you can see it, but there's some debate about that. But let me tell you what the Constitution says for which there is no debate. The state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's the plain part of the Constitution, okay? Now, next, next issue, are Christians simply seeking to legislate biblical morality? Are we just trying to legislate biblical morality? Well, yes. I mean, at least so far as biblical morality is morality. I mean, every law is the legislation of morality, when we have a law that says you can't murder, and we have a law that says you can't shoplift, you can't steal, you can't punch somebody in the nose, that is legislating morality. When we stand up and we say that people cannot be mistreated or denied their rights due to their race, we are seeking to legislate biblical morality. 
How is that? Well, the Bible says that every person is creating the image of God. The Bible says, therefore, all people are equal. They have equal value. And therefore, no race should be treated differently due to its race. That is biblical morality. And it ought to be legislated. And when the Bible says that life begins at conception and that all people created in the image of God and all people have equal value and deserve equal protection, that is biblical morality, but it is just morality. And it should be legislated. Next issue, shouldn't women have the freedom to make decisions with their own bodies? Well, absolutely. Absolutely they should. And, I, and, and, and I'm all for strengthening any kind of laws necessary to prevent women from being impregnated against their wishes. I have three daughters. I do not want them to be impregnated against their wishes. Absolutely. But here's something I learned in elementary school physics class, civics class, not physics. I learned that my rights stop where your rights start. Does that make sense? I've got the rights. I have the freedom to take my fists and move them all over the place. But my right to move my fist stops right where your nose starts. Because you have a right not to have a punched in nose, right? And so I've got a lot of rights, but my rights have a limit. And the limit to my rights is at least where your rights start. I think a woman should have rights to her body. My body, my choice, certainly. But when it comes to the baby in her body, her rights stop where that baby's rights start. I have the right to everything in my car. But if you get in my car, I don't have rights over your body and your protection. Just because it's my car that you're in, my rights stop where your rights start. I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, but... But it it bears saying here, there's a difference between having a right to choose and having a right to avoid the consequences of one's choice. And we don't need to confuse those two things. They are very different things. Well, let's go to the next issue. Will restrictions on legal abortions lead to unsafe back alley abortions? I don't have enough time to deal with all of these Uh, But I'll say about this, uh, any loss of life is a bad thing, any loss of life, and Christians should find ways to rescue, to show the love of Christ. That includes protecting babies in the womb, and it includes helping pregnant women find safe harbor and help them to avoid anything that would cause damage to their bodies. The next one, shouldn't we safeguard abortion for the sake of parents who are told their children will be born with disabilities? What if a doctor says your child's going to be born handicapped? Shouldn't we have abortion to give those parents options? Well, two things, quickly. First of all, a person's value is not determined by anything other other than the fact that they've been created in the image of God. A person's value is not determined by their IQ. The doctor may tell a a couple that, hey, your child is not going to have the mental development of some other children. But that does not change that child's value one iota. You're not more valuable because you're smarter. You're not less valuable because you're not. Our value is not determined by the clarity of our eyesight. 
Our value is not determined because we don't look like somebody else. Our value is not determined by having two arms or two legs. Our value, a person's value is determined by the fact that he or she has been created in the image of God. Handicap, disable, those are issues that need to be handled with love and concern, but they're not issues of value, not at all. The second thing, just a quick note, uh, no disability organization supports the policy of aborting handicapped and disabled children. I just think that's interesting. The Association uh, for Blind People, the Association for all kind of uh, difficulties, none of those associations are suggesting that we uh, abort children with those problems. The next one, quickly, we shouldn't, shouldn't we allow women to abort their babies if they're facing financial burdens? This is one you read about often. Well, those women are are in very difficult situations financially, and many of them are. But that confuses, listen, it confuses finding a solution with eliminating the problem. If your neighbor's dog keeps pooping in your yard and you shoot the dog, okay, you have eliminated the problem, but you have not found a solution. Preborn people are people. And we cannot justify killing a person because it just eliminates a problem. If we use that line of reasoning, who knows where that would stop? Well, what about rape and incest? Well, again, this is a very difficult issue. The Christian community must always be marked by love and compassion. But here's what I say to people in that situation. First of all, the Lord, our Lord, is the master at turning terrible things into beautiful things. Our church will walk with you through this. And a person is not defined by the circumstances that brought him or her into this world. The answer to some of these impossible questions is just Jesus. Just Jesus. Well, the, the fourth thing we need to do very quickly is we need to expand the frame. Uh, what I mean by that is we need to step back and we need to collect all the information we can. I, I, I think if you expand the frame enough, you can at least have some appreciation of why people think the way they think. That doesn't mean that they're correct, but I want us to try to, for a moment to understand why this is such a hot topic issue. Why are we, why are we fighting this fight for all of these years? I want to share with you two quick reasons. Number one, I think the chief reason is there is that strong desire for sexual freedom. You don't read about that. That's not what people say, but I think that underlies much of this. People don't want choice. Many people want choice without consequences. People want to have sex with people they don't want to have babies with. And I hope that doesn't upset you, but I think that is the fact that underlies much of this. Now you say, Pastor, what's the point? Why are you saying that? Well, I just think we need to talk honestly about the issue. I, need, I, think, we, I think people need to quit hiding behind these high-sounding arguments if, if the reason people want abortion on demand is so that they can have sexual freedom with no consequences, then, then just please say that. Because I think Jesus has something to say to those people. I think we could minister to those people. I think we could help those people. But as long as we're hiding behind all of these crazy arguments and not speaking the truth, we have muddied the waters and that serves nobody. The second reason that I want to share that I think this is such a big deal 
is hidden grief. I've talked to a lot of women in my years of ministry who, and men, who have aborted babies and suffered devastating consequences sometimes for decades, mental, emotional, spiritual. And, and I think we probably, because it's such a hidden thing, we just don't know how deep the wound is. And I don't think I know either. But I know it's a deep wound. When I was pastoring in Ohio, we had a few ladies in our church that uh, had had abortions. And they sought to put together this confidential, private support group for people in the community that had also had abortions uh, many decades earlier. And people in the community just came out of the woodwork desperate for, for help. And I know that many people will grieve in different ways. And I'm not trying to put everybody in the same basket uh, but don't, ladies, don't let anybody ever tell you that an abortion is like having an appendectomy or having your wisdom teeth removed. Women don't commit suicide after appendectomies. Women don't grieve for decades after having their wisdom teeth removed. In my reading this week, as I said, I read as much as I could read from the abortion advocates. I knew what I was going to say Biblically, I've preached that message a few times. But I wanted to read as much as I could from the advocates because I wanted to understand their perspective as much as I could. And I ran across uh, one young lady by the name of Layla Josephine. Uh, she's 31 years old. She's a major figure in the world of abortion advocacy. And in 2014, eight years ago, she wrote a poem called, I Think She Was a She. Uh, Miss uh, Josephine had an abortion. And so she wrote this poem to her baby that she had aborted. And she titled it, I Think She Was a She. And I want to read part of this to you. I can't read it all because it all is not proper for our context but I want you to hear what she says, because this, this was common to so much that I read this week. But I also want you to hear what she says, but she doesn't say. You know what I mean? So here's how her poem begins. I think she was a she. She could have been born, and I would have made sure that we had a space on the wall to measure her height as she grew. I would have made sure I was a good mother to look up to, but I would have supported her right to choose, to choose a life for herself, a path for herself. I would have died for that right, just like she died for mine. I'm sorry, but you came at the wrong time. But I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I had to carve down that little cherry tree that had rooted itself in my blood and blossomed in my brain, a responsibility I didn't have the energy or the age to maintain, the branches casting shadows over the rest of the garden, the bark causing my thoughts, my hearts to harden. It's a hollowness that feels full and a numbness that feels heavy, but I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. 
I found a video of her reciting the poem was moving, not perhaps in the way she thought it would be. Um, But I wrote my own little, well, I won't call it a poem because I don't have the skill with words, but I wrote something back, and I want to read it to you. Layla Josephine, I don't shame you. In fact, my Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that is good news for you and for me. Layla Josephine, I imagine you would have been a good mother. Most mothers find the strength and the love to bless their children no matter the circumstances. And that is good news for you and for me. Layla Josephine, I'm sorry for what you call your hollowness that feels full and your numbness that feels heavy. Because Jesus says, come those who are weary and find rest for your souls. And that is good news for you and for me. Layla Josephine, I hear your refrain, I am not ashamed. But I also hear your heart filled with shame. And I hear the words of scripture when it says Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and washed away our shame. And that is good news for you and for me. Layla Josephine, Jesus loves you and the church will show you that love if you will allow it. And that's good news for you, for me. You know, my biggest fear in preaching a message like this, and I'm not worried that people get mad because they think I'm wrong. Uh, I'm an ambassador for Christ. And if you don't like the message of the king, take it up with the king, right? Those kind of things don't bother me. I'm not worried that people will think I've swerved too far into politics. I've not swerved into politics. Politics have swerved into me, Right? Uh, Let politics debate the capital gains tax and the charter of of the United Nations. But when it comes to the value of life, that was established long before the politics were established. And so it's not that I'm on their turf, they're on my turf, they're on the Bible's turf. But I'll tell you what worries me. It worries me that women who have aborted their children will feel like this is not a safe place to share their stories, to be accepted, loved, cared for, to find forgiveness, solace, and hope. So what should we do? Well, we should preach the truth with our words, with our ballots, no question. We should proclaim Christ. We should love on people who are searching for life and for solace. And there ought to be no place in Nacogdoches that cares for children more than this place. We are a pro-life church. What does that mean? That means we believe that every person is valuable. Because he or she is created in the image of God. And we're committed to loving them with the love of Christ from the moment of conception all the way through. Heads bowed, eyes closed.
You know, it amazes me when I think about my value because I know I'm worthless. But God said I'm valuable. And God said I'm so valuable that he sent his son Jesus to die for my sins and for yours. That's the message of the hour. If you've never put your trust in Christ, let that begin today. Say, Father, I, I know I'm guilty of sin, but I trust what Christ has done on the cross is enough for me. Surrender my life to you. And then let somebody here help you take those next steps. But listen, let me say a final word to people in here, men and women, who have aborted a child. Listen, you're a sinner like all the rest of us. And here you will find love and solace because in Christ you will find hope. Receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Ask him to restore your joy. Let our church help you. Father in heaven, I just say a quick prayer for Layla Josephine. I'll never meet her. She'll never know my words. But I know that there are a lot more Josephines right here that may. And I pray you help our church be the light of Christ in their lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.